open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. In a perfect world, all the decisions we'd make in the care of our patients would be the most informed decisions possible. We would have long-term data, clinical and experiential validation, and an unwavering certainty that our next step was the right step. But as we know, many times our decisions are not made this way. They cannot be made this way. Sometimes we like one or all of these checks and balances, and for the time being, our most trusted source becomes our gut instinct. One surgeon whose gut instinct seems to always be in check is Dr. Rob Weinstock. Rob is a very successful high volume surgeon with a patient centric practice and an innovative and progressive mindset towards ophthalmology. But he also has conviction. When Rob speaks in favor of a technology or approach, the authenticity is clear. It's obvious he feels it in his gut. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, we'll hear from Rob on how he has learned to trust his instincts when it comes to investing in new technology. He'll also weigh in on putting patients first and finding the right partner in Neil Desai. Here's Rob. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And today I have the opportunity of interviewing Rob Weinstock. And Rob is one of those guys who, in my mind, I, uh, I envy, I look up to, and I just kind of know I'll never do it quite as good as Rob, though I will constantly try. So it's great to have Rob on here so I can pick his brain, maybe distill out some of the uh, techniques and, and philosophies that he lives by and operates by, and maybe we can all uh, get a little bit uh, better and become a little bit more like Rob by the end of this. So with that said, Rob, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Well, that's very kind of you, Gary. It's a great honor to, um, to be here, and I think this work you're doing with these podcasts is innovative, and there needs to be more... Uh, sharing of information in a casual atmosphere in a way people can feel comfortable because uh, we all have so much to learn from each other. So, well, great. thank you. I, I you know, I, I, I'll kind of get back to the original concept for the podcast. I realized at meetings that you go to, a lot of the most important pearls are shared really in the hallways, not always from the podium. And a lot of people don't have time or, or can't break away from clinic to go to all the meetings and don't have that opportunity to have those casual conversations with people. And so that's really what we're trying to do here. We're, we're just trying to have casual conversations about what works in your practice. I also want to know a little bit more about you and what makes you tick. So we'll kind of get into all of that. Um, but I'd really like to start by getting a sense of your practice. Um, I know a little bit about it, but I'd like the people who are listening to kind of get a sense of the the style of your practice. And maybe you could we can talk a little bit about how you have been able to um, create a really, really nice system for patients to come in, have a, a beautiful experience, but also efficiently get their surgery taken care of, um, and maybe the way you've built a system around um, high-volume surgery. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's a long story, and I'm very, very fortunate to have been able to step into a very well-organized, successful practice that my father started in 1972. Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous advantage to, for a surgeon to be able to step into a platform 
that is already up and running and has learned a lot of the mistakes the hard way right. and has already has a footprint of how to do some things right. So I dropped into a, a well-evolved multi-specialty practice um, and then that became a platform for kind of taking it to the next level. So uh, that is a, a gift and uh, I'm eternally grateful for everything he's taught me because he also was a mentor in terms of not just how to talk to patients, uh, not just how to do great surgery, but also how to um, be honest and gain trust, not just of uh, patients, but build relationships with industry, uh, build relationships with your management team, and, and, and be visionary somewhat. And you have to be visionary if you're going to um, be successful, no matter what you do. If you want to lead, if you want to um, break new ground, if you want to be at the top of your game, you have to have some type of, of why or some type of vision of how you want it to be and then make incremental steps towards that. And um, so some of the things that happened along the way was um, it just became very obvious to me that cataract surgery really was going to be the area of innovation. And when I got out of training, LASIK, there was more LASIK being done in my practice than cataract surgery. Really? And now it's, you know, obviously, like most of us, is completely flip-flopped. Right. So, you know, it just, when I, when I saw the Crystallens come to market and that we had kind of a LASIK-like implant where we had been sitting on these patients who, who came in wanting LASIK, but we didn't have a solution for them because they were hyperopic and they were presbyopic. Right. And we couldn't address the needs. They thought they wanted LASIK. And then all of a sudden, the crystal lens came along. Uh, and all of a sudden, the clear lens replacement game and the refractive cataract surgery light bulb went on. And then it was just game on, shifting our practice towards a LASIK-like experience right. for our cataract patients. But if a practice or a practitioner has never offered refractive surgery in the form of LASIK and doesn't know what that customer-driven experience needs to be like, it's very hard to just start that de novo right. in a practice. You, have, you would have to go do your research and see what that's like. So I think a refractive background and a customer-service-driven background aspect of your practice is critical for making that transition uh, into that in the cataract side of things. And that's been a huge push in the past decade is to create a practice where the patients have an amazing customer experience um, driven process and be pushing for outcomes like LASIK. So it's interesting that you bring that up. I've been noticing a pattern and maybe everyone knows this and I'm just you know late to the game, but it seems like the practices that did really well with LASIK and really started to understand the refractive mindset of patients have been those same practices who have been able to more seamlessly shift into the presbyopia correcting premium IOL category. And I, and I don't know if it's that there's a refractive mindset. I think that's part of it. I think it's really trying to nail all the details. But you brought up a really interesting point, which is it's also about the customer experience or the patient experience. And so I think that those are two sides of the equation, but I think they're both critical. 
And so you bring up a really, really good point. I think it's maybe harder for someone who's only ever done cataract surgery and comprehensive practice to sort of re-gear or change their culture to become a, a you know, a premium IOL uh, practice than it is for a, a guy who's been doing a lot of LASIK and doing some cataracts to shift into that, you know, premium IOL space. You agree with that? Is that a... I do. And, and, um, industry would love to see all cataract surgeons promote, uh, stigmatism correction and, uh, promote presbyopia correction within their practices. But, um, most cataract surgeons were not trained in that arena. And it's very hard, uh, to teach an old dog new tricks. It's just, we get very easily trapped in, um, the behaviors that we're comfortable with and it becomes overwhelming to try to change those. So you have to, again, have a vision of what you want to do, have the motivation and then take incremental steps like start offering Torex or take one surgical counselor and train them, take them under your wing and tell them your vision and implement that. That's the one that you start sending certain patients to, to talk about, these particular options right and then start to develop um, just infrastructures and protocols in your practice to help deliver those outcomes and implement that um, one thing that we started very early on along that lines was this concept of the red coats we just happened to have them in our practice basically patient liaisons opening the door to let the patient in walking around, handing out coffee, cookies. If they see somebody that seems lost or displaced, they engage with them. You know, if somebody looks like they're upset, they go up to them. So uh, adding some expense, but in the mindset of trying to provide a better atmosphere for patients and have them have a meaningful and positive experience um, because all of us today are delivering great outcomes. So it really, you have to go above and beyond that and have this experience for the patient. So I think it's a worthwhile investing in those processes. And you don't have to do it all at once. You, you just bite off uh, one thing at a time to try to get where you're going. Right. And I think that's, I mean, I've been on the other side of this. So I started to practice right out of residency. And, you know, having, you know, limited capital and resources it was really tough for me to say, what are the essential pieces of equipment that I need and staff and how many lanes do I need and how do I run a lean operation and what is critical? Because, you know, you, you, if, if you have a small practice that's doing okay, it's almost a catch-22. It's sort of like you have to take a step backwards financially to invest in some of the infrastructure or personnel or, you know, equipment to then take two or three steps forward. And that can be really tough because you're, you're sort of, at, maybe you're at a point in your practice or, or others and, and things are kind of, you know, okay, and you just don't want to take that financial risk. And so it seems like there may be some opportunities now with private equity. We were talking about this yesterday that, I mean, maybe there is an opportunity for private equity to help surgeons bridge that gap. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe that's a topic we can we can talk about briefly. Yeah, I mean, even before private equity, there is some um, logic behind smaller practices partnering with a larger practice to gain access to some of the cultural aspects that that practice offers, the technology that that practice has, and become like a satellite or outpost, and even maybe get some 
um, mentorship from one of the surgeons within the practice. That mm-hmm. could be a win-win for both that the doctor who's out in practice that wants to move in that direction and for the practice that is wanting to grow. And that, that might be a pre-stage process even prior to private equity becoming involved because then there will be a bigger infrastructure already in place. The private equity companies at this moment in time, in this snapshot of time, they seem to be going after larger platform practices, multi-specialty practices, footprint practices that have a very uh, good hold in a geographic region and are looking to grow even larger across that geography and add more providers and grow an even bigger platform because it starts to get very expensive as you start building more surgery centers and open satellites. But prior to that, for some of the smaller practices to partner up with a medium to larger size practice that, say, is already in the space of multi-specialty eye care, is already in the space of premium IOL surgery, uh, refractive outcomes, already has a lot of the technology pieces, you could have a win-win because that general ophthalmologist who wants to to move forward and step up their game uh, could become a satellite per se, or an outpost of that larger practice, get get access to those pieces of technology, maybe even get some guidance, some fellowship, some, um, mentorship. some mentorship yeah. in how to do that from one of the surgeons that's been trained or is offering that. And then it becomes a win for the bigger practice because, um, you know, one guy can't do it all and have another surgeon uh, in a more remote area or across the region or across the city or town who also offers the similar services, um, that's going to be a benefit to the larger portfolio and then maybe even make it more attractive and more valuable to a private equity firm when they come along. And if we're really talking about uh, providing patients in this country a little bit more access to standardized quality of services, you know, it kind of it's kind of sad um, that and unfortunate that uh, patients don't understand like we do the difference between an extra capsular cataract surgery and say a microincisional cataract surgery. They just think cataract surgery is cataract surgery, and it's it's almost unfair for um, patients not to have a standardized set of of uh, of benefits that they can expect or or achieve, um, and a lot of it's word of mouth, um, but it's hard for patients to do their homework. So. If we can work more towards raising all ships, right. um, raising everybody's skill set, and then even making hard decisions where you split the care and you let people do what they do best, um, and then kind of have a shared care philosophy in eye care, much like we do with optometrists um, helping us, that's very important. And there's a lot of areas of this country that that is looked down upon co-management and optometrists and ophthalmologists don't have uh, good relationships. All that does is negatively impact the patients. Right. And it draws lines and it's, it's a battle that I feel like should have, you know, (laughs) should never have happened and it does no good for anyone. No, you have to put the patient and this is something my father taught me. If you were to try to take money out of the equation and politics um, and competition for space and really just focus on what's best for the patient, um, that's really where you make the best decisions. Right. Because you're not jaded by trying to 
look at it from a different perspective because we're the we're the we're the the doctors. It's our responsibility to figure out what's best for the patient. Right, I agree with that. So here's a question on that a little bit on that on that line. I know you're uh, a, a practice that is invested deeply in technology, and I'm sure that always follows that same philosophy of what's best for the patient. When you're presented with a new technology, maybe it's a new topographer, maybe it's a new laser, um, fill in the blank, what is your thesis on when you double down on a technology and you acquire it versus saying, I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach on this? Yeah, that's a, that's a very um, tough question, and there is no easy answer. I can tell you that... Uh, for me, a lot of it becomes very guttural and instinctual. Mm-hmm. And I look at something like, um, and I try to look if there's a delta between what is currently being done and what this new technology offers. And if there's a real difference where I say like, wow, this is missing. And if this does work, this fills this gap. Um, then uh, I find it. So, I mean, I can give you some quick examples. So, like, when I um, was looking at, I watched Howard Fine, for example, start to do bimanual FACO when, when AMO invented the White Star software. So, when that White Star software was invented that made the FACO needle not become hot during cataract surgery, I realized that it would be safe and not have a wound burn risk if you separated the irrigation. So I went and I watched Howard. I took a course and I watched Amar Agarwal and I watched. And I said, from a fluid dynamics perspective, it, it makes sense to keep irrigation separate from aspiration for fluid dynamics. You're not repelling things away from you. And you're able to keep irrigation high in the anterior chamber while you work deep in the capsular bag. And once I figure that technique out. Um, it was, it worked for me. And then I started training people in my practice and my fellows and everyone who's done has never looked back. Yes, there's a transition curve, but to me that, that represented a clear Delta between the way something was being done and making it better. The same holds, for example, when I was asked to evaluate the prototypes for aura intraoperative aberometry. You know, we have this stagnant preoperative testing that we do, and then we go into the OR and we try to execute on that plan. Why not have more information available, more metrics, more biometry to help us make good decisions intraoperatively? That resonated with me. I said, you know what? If this does work, this prototype, this is going to give me more information to make refractive decisions around. And I saw the wave of refractive outcomes coming for cataract surgery. Um, So... It was obvious to me that there was a potential benefit there, and I didn't know whether we'd be able to figure it out and and whether the prototypes were actually going to work, but it seemed like a viable project and worth my energy and time. The same thing held with TrueVision and and operating heads up. When I first saw that there was an ability to operate off a screen and have greater depth perception and not be tied to the microscope and have my team around me engaged in the surgery for instrument passing and be more comfortable when I operated, that is a, um, that is a type of leapfrog, game-changing technology that is disruptive and has applications that are well beyond things that could be offered through the conventional way things have been done for 100 years. Right. So 
Now, when I'm faced with new technology, it has to have some of those key features. It clearly has to be disruptive. It clearly has to fulfill a need. And it clearly has to translate into better outcomes and a better experience for the patient and the doctor. Again, I try not to look at what the financial modeling is going to look like. Because my philosophy is, is that ultimately, maybe not short term, but ultimately, the money issues will sort themselves out if the technology truly has a benefit to the patient. Right. I agree with that. You know, it is, there are some real world applications where you, you always have to keep your eye on, you know, the dollars and cents. But, um, you know, we were talking about this, you know, uh, I think yesterday. To me, Femto is one of those sort of no-brainer technologies that I can clearly say the laser does a better job than I can do manually. And does it always translate into a better refractive outcome? I can't say that it always does, but what I can say is if I'm betting on a long-term benefit of a technology that can use OCT guidance to perfectly do a capsule rexus of any size centered on the capsule, it can pre-chop my lens, it can make, you know, uh, arcuate cuts for, you know, correction of astigmatism. This this technology is something that I can I can bite into. You know, this is something I can really sink my teeth into. It's a very interesting perspective, and I couldn't agree more with you. And it brings up a broader challenge that we have. And that challenge is to make decisions um, that historically we make based on science and data um, and medicine, the way we've been taught, our minds have been trained, the way science has evolved has been based on data but we get into situations clinically in the real world where sometimes it's not possible to show the data but yet we know instinctually that it's right okay so even the best cataract surgeon in the world occasionally screws up a capsule rexus mm -hmm. or the patient moves during right. it or the 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 um anesthetist drops a clipboard and it the patient jerks their head while you're holding the capsule right. and you have a complication. And even if that's once a month or once a year, if there's a technology that can prevent that from happening, that's ultimately going to benefit from that to that patient. That's a person's eye right. and their vision. It doesn't I always tell patients it doesn't matter if something happens one in a thousand times. If you're that one in a thousand, it sure. was you. It was you. It was a hundred percent chance for you. So we know we don't need science to tell us that this laser is better than the human hand. Everybody knows it. You know it. Right. We don't need um, science and data to tell us that if you soften up a dense 4NS cataract first or provide some cracks or cuts, it's going to be easier to dismantle that cataract with less risk and less manipulation out of that. You don't need science to tell you that if your cataract procedure now when you get in the OR parts of it already done, that it's going to take the stress off the surgeons, be one less thing they have to worry about, and they're going to have more concentration on what they're doing and be able to last longer in the OR without the stress and the fatigue. Right. So, um, but these are challenges because our convention is to wait for the science and the data. Right. And, um, but many of the more innovative surgeons and many of the things that we see today that have been proven by science and data and our standard of care, they didn't start out that way. Took they a lot of started time. out by the leaders knowing with gut instinct and following their dreams 
and doing it because they, in their hands, it worked better and conceptually it was better right. to them. Right. Kelman did it. Right. Ridley did it. They didn't wait for data and science. And the guys that were right behind them, they didn't wait either. Right. But they were the first ones to give the benefits to their patients. That's right. So I think I think it's a, always a balanced approach. You know, we would love the data, but sometimes it takes um, time for tools to evolve and become better. It takes people using those tools in new and different ways to figure out how do we move the needle, how do we create a real delta. So I agree with you. You know, we would all love the studies to show that this is reproducibly better in every single patient. I really firmly believe that is going to come. I don't think we're there yet necessarily, but I'm happy to provide those benefits to my patients at this point because just like you, I'm very confident I'm doing the best thing for my patients. So let's let's uh, move a little bit, and you know, this is kind of a good segue into where do you feel like there are some unmet needs or the biggest unmet needs in ophthalmology right now? If, if you were sort of surveying the landscape, where do you see opportunities for improvement? You know, I don't think that I'm going to say anything revolutionary or new. I think it's rehashing, but I, it's reinforcing. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at outcomes, dealing with patients postoperatively who are not exactly where they need to be, and um, seeking 20 happy, right. okay, and not seeking, seeking 2015. So there's a lot of stress there's a lot of psychology and psychiatry um, and anxiety around patient care because of the lack of perfection of cataract surgery outcomes. Right. I agree. So with if something like perfect lens or light adjusted lens or some other type of new technology, maybe a new trifocal lens or multifocal or accommodating lens something to take the stress off of us surgeons that we don't have to work so hard to deliver that great outcome to the patient. That's going to be a huge change. We're going to start doing cataract surgery sooner on younger patients. Um, you'll be able to do more of it because we don't have to manage the problems postoperatively. Right. That, in my mind, is the biggest need. I also think that these devices need to be consolidated. I mean, the time it takes a patient to get through my clinic because they need to get a topography, a tomography, an OCT, a biometry device, right. and then get dilated. Right. And then I have to look at them and maybe order something else because I see something. Right. There's no physical way we're going to be able to take care of the volume of patients that are coming through based on the demographic projections with our current portfolio of technology. I need one machine that a patient can sit down at as soon as they walk in the door, attached to the slit lamp or swung in like a slit lamp, and it does all five of those tests that I mentioned in one minute. Right. That would be a huge It's very user-independent, you know. Yeah. There's so much room for improvement of flow in terms of the clinic side, and there's so much room for improvement in the lens and implant um, technology in terms of giving us great outcomes. Those are the biggest needs in my mind. I agree. I, I mean, I think that um, having technology that makes it really, really easy and non-invasive perhaps to correct maybe ad, not adverse outcomes, but um, less than 20, 20 or less than 20 happy 
being able to get those patients, you know, corrected, that's a huge stress for us, a huge unmet need. I think it's coming. I mean, with RX Site, with Perfect Lens, um, Claire Vista has a product that's great. You know, we're working on a product with Omega that hopefully solves some of those challenges as well. Um, so I, I would totally agree with you. And for preventative solutions for other things that both you and I are worried about for our own eyes, glaucoma, macular degeneration, it seems like everything we have is reactive. Right. It's not proactive. What do we have? Vitamins, okay? Green leafy vegetables for macular degeneration. We've got deposition in the retina of, of byproducts of metabolism. Right. We've got to come up with solutions to prevent the deposition of those metabolites. Right. Glaucoma, we know, is a perfusion problem. We need to figure out how to change the perfusion to the optic nerve to allow better perfusion to prevent glaucoma. Yeah. Um, these are the biggest unmet needs, maybe even beyond what I mentioned for the refractive side of things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite people, and that's Neil Desai. That's your partner. One of my favorite people. Um, if you don't like Neil Desai, um, just don't listen anymore to my podcasts because he's fantastic. Um, so I got a question. How did you find Neil Desai? How did you recruit him? How did that whole story come about? Because I would love to find ways to maybe translate your search for a great young surgeon um, for maybe other people who are out there looking for a, you know, a partner to join their practice? Well, it's a great story. Um, it, it really started with we were looking for, uh, we had a big cornea need in our practice. And because I was so tied up with LASIK and cataract, we needed a cornea person who also had experience and wanted to do refractive surgery as well. So there's an unmet need in the practice. Um, that led us to doing a search through the usual channels, through recruiters, word of mouth, websites, and also through connections. One of our retina specialists, Richard Hairston, trained at Wilmer, was good friends with Walter Stark. Mm -hmm. Called up Walter and said, hey, we're looking for a cornea specialist. Do you have any fellows or know anybody? Just an outreach call. Walter said, I have an amazing fellow who happened to be Neil. So there was a connection through... Uh, relationships because of uh, Richard's relationship with Walter and he had trained it in retina up there. And then uh, we reached out to Neil and Neil felt comfortable because there was a connection to Wilmer there. So then it just really became about building a relationship with Neil. Um, we talked many times over the phone. Um, he came down and visited several times and it was more about um, you know, he had a phenomenal opportunity to actually stay at Wilmer and be right out of the gate one of the takeover, like almost a chair position for cornea in one of the top academic institutions in the country. I mean, almost an impossible competitive realm because that is such an amazing opportunity he had. And he is so talented, uh, not only as a surgeon, but as a person, such an amazing person. So... I had to resonate with him what the value proposition was of coming to join us. And basically, I think what resonated was the family atmosphere that we have in our practice, the culture of being um, 
customer service oriented, highly efficient, highly evolved in operations, and almost being like an academic center in what we offered because of the level of providers we have or are at that high level of training, but yet the atmosphere is more run like a well-oiled company instead of an academic environment where things happen slowly in the red tape. There's no control over the process. Yes. And I can't speak for Neil, but we've talked about this enough, is the drive that he had to be in control of his own destiny. Not just in terms of being able to get what technology want, practice the way he wanted, but to have equity and ownership in what he was doing and be part of this family that would grow together and and camaraderie that was there and the and the culture so it was a combination of all that and it was you know we have hundreds of pages of documents to sign but it was really more about the relationship building the opportunity and the handshake and for him to see that the other partners that were now equity owners in the practice, like Richard Hairston and Lenny Kirsch, our other retina specialist, and the two glaucoma specialists. There was a track record of success. Happiness. Yes. And that's what is my recommendation. Now, the first one's always the hardest, right? that leap of faith. But after that, if the new guy that came in becomes partner and is happy and is having a great quality of life and job satisfaction and feels empowered within the practice and has a sense of ownership, then that's going to be obvious to the next guy that comes along. So when you really want a really talented person, really in my mind, you have to offer that ability to stand side by side with them as a partner, make decisions together, and be a team. And, and I really think that that is important if you're really looking to get the best of the best. Well, I think you have uh, nailed it right on the head. And uh, you guys are definitely one of the dynamic duos, I think, in ophthalmology. And um, I've, I've told you I'm going to come down to your practice. I'm going to make good on that promise. So at some point and hopefully in the near future, I'm going to come down and, and hopefully see your practice and maybe spend some time with you and Neil. Um, I know I would learn a lot, and um, uh, that those kind of experiences um, are invaluable as we all try to figure out how to do things a little bit better. So, Rob, I, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, giving me some of these insights. I think it's been very, it's been very interesting to me. I know it's going to be interesting to others who are listening. And uh, open invitation if you ever have a topic that you think is interesting or you would like to get out there, uh, we would love to have you back on sometime. So, thank you. Thanks, Gary. I really appreciate the opportunity and I hope it resonates and is helpful. Although our instincts can sometimes feel unreliable, one thing is clear. If we put our patients first, if we keep them at the core of everything we do, we can trust that the decisions we make are made with the very best intentions. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you ever want to chat, we're here on Off the Grid. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.